Good morning, everybody. Our opening words of scripture come from the first letter to the church at Corinth and are part of Paul's response to the fact that people all seem to be following different teachings, different people who they find attractive. And this is what he says. What, after all, is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. It's only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labour. For we are God's co-workers, God's co-creators, God's co-builders, and you are God's field, God's building, God's creation. So let's come to God with our prayers of praise and our prayers of confession. And this morning I'm using some books from a, a collection, uh, some prayers from a collection of prayers from around the world. And so the first prayer we use is from Scotland. And the second prayer that we will be using comes from South Africa, though it is in English. Let us pray together. We have heard about you, God of all power. You made the world out of kindness, creating order out of confusion. You made each one of us in your own image. Your fingerprint is on every soul. So we praise you. We have heard about you, Jesus Christ, the carpenter who left his tools and trade, the poor man who made others rich, the healer who let himself be wounded, the criminal on whom the soldiers spat, not knowing they were fouling the face of God, the saviour who died and rose again. So we praise you. We have heard about you, Holy Spirit. You broke the bonds of every race and nation to let God speak in every, every tongue, You made disciples drunk with grace. You converted souls and emptied pockets. You showed how love makes all things new and opened the doors to change and freedom. So we praise you. You asked for my hands that you might use them for your purpose. I gave them for a moment, then withdrew them for the work was hard. You asked for my mouth to speak out against injustice. I gave you a whisper that I might not be accused. You asked for my eyes to see the pain of poverty. I closed them, for I did not want to see. You asked for my life, that you might work through me. I gave a small part, that I might not get too involved. 
Lord, forgive my calculated efforts to serve you, only when it's convenient for me to do so, only in those places where it is safe to do so, and only with those who make it easy to do so. Father, forgive me. Renew me. Send me out as a usable instrument that I might take seriously the meaning of your cross. We offer these prayers in the name of Christ. Amen. Now we have a slight change this morning. We're not going to sing a psalm. We're going to read one responsively together. If you could turn to number 709 in the hymn book. At number 709, you will find the words of Psalm 147 set for a responsive reading. And I'm going to suggest that the women and girls present read the words in the ordinary type, and the men and boys read the words in the bold type. Psalm 147. How good it is to sing praises to our God. He heals the broken hearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has delivered it. Singing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make music to our God on the heart. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. He has revealed his word to Jacob. His laws and decrees Praise the Lord. One we actually believe that. It's great words there. There are four scripture readings this morning. The first one is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. That's on page 245 in the Good News Bible. Slaves. Obey your human masters with fear and trembling, and do it with a sincere heart as though you were serving Christ. Do this not only when they are watching you because you want to gain their approval, but with all your heart do what God wants as slaves of Christ. Do your work as slaves cheerfully as though you serve the Lord and not merely human beings. Remember that the Lord will reward everyone, whether slave or free, for the good work they do. Masters, behave in the same way towards your slaves and stop using threats. Remember that you and your slaves belong to the same master in heaven who judges everyone by the same standard. The second reading is from Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 13.
Our brothers and sisters, we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to keep away from all believers who are living a lazy life and do not follow the instructions that we gave them. You yourselves know very well that you should do just what we did. We were not lazy when we were with you. We did not accept anyone's support without paying for it. Instead, we worked and toiled. We kept working day and night so as not to be an expense to any of you. We did this, not because we have no right to demand our support. We did it to be an example for you to follow. While we were with you, we used to say to you, whoever refuses to work is not allowed to eat. We say this because we hear that there are some people among you who live lazy lives and who do nothing except meddle in other people's business. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command these people and warn them to lead orderly lives and work to earn their own living. But you, brothers and sisters, must not get tired of doing good. The third reading is from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. You have six days in which to do your work, but the seventh day is a day of rest dedicated to me. On that day, no one is to work, neither you, your children, your slaves, your animals, nor the foreigners who live in your country. In six days, I, the Lord, made the earth, the sky, the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day, I rested." That is why I, the Lord, blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. And the last reading is from Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. Jesus was walking through some cornfields on the Sabbath. As his disciples walked along with them, they began to pick the ears of corn. So the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, it is against our law for your disciples to do that on the Sabbath. Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did that time when he needed something to eat? He and his men were hungry, so he went into the house of God and ate the bread offered to God. This happened when Abiathar was the high priest. According to our law only, the priests may eat this bread, but David ate it and even gave it to his men. And Jesus concluded, the Sabbath was made for the good of human beings. They, they were not made for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Amen. Once again today, our starting point for reflection lies in the so-called household codes from the letter to the church. That's Ephesus. It's interesting that I think October has been Ephesians month in Baptist life in Scotland. We've had Ephesians every week in October. Um, Anne was away visiting some, another church last week and they preached on Ephesians. And I was at a seminar at the Baptist Assembly yesterday and guess what? The speaker quoted Ephesians. So it must be the month for Ephesians in Baptist life. Anyway... First of all, we looked at marriage relationships and thought about the qualities that might make them explicitly Christian in nature. 
And then we went on to look at the complexity of family life, realizing that the Bible doesn't give us a neat and tidy model that we can pick up and transplant. But actually, many biblical families were disordered and dysfunctional. And so we asked ourselves whether there were useful lessons we could learn from African culture, and particularly the South African concept of Ubuntu. And I think we still have some unpacking of that to do if we want to make that part of our lives. But today we move on to think about whether there might be such a thing as a Christian work ethic. And if so, what that might look like. Now, it's not going to surprise you, given the way this series has worked, that I'm not going to begin by telling you that there's not an easy answer in the Bible. There isn't. There's no neat, tidy answer in the Bible about a Christian work ethic. So we have to do a bit of work to think about this. The Bible readings that we heard are some of the ones that are most frequently used when people are preaching on the relationship of faith and work. The household codes in in letter to the Ephesians with its radical expectations of how masters might treat their slaves, the owning of which is not questioned, and the expectations that slaves should be diligent in their work, whether or not they were being watched, is often appropriated by preachers to express something about the unequal relationships that exist between managers and staff, between junior and senior employees, between bosses and workers. And I would have to say, if I'm honest, that I have done that at various times. Whilst it certainly can offer us some helpful insights into how to make those kinds of relationships more humane, more mutually satisfying, and hopefully more godly, we cannot simply translate a first-century slave-master relationship into a 21st century employment context. Because in a 21st century employment context, there is at least some sense of voluntarism. If you really, really hate your job, you can go and find another one. If your employer is abusive or particularly bad, you have legal frameworks that will support you in seeking redress. That didn't exist in a first-century master-slave relationship. The way a first-century slave might have been treated by her owner would bear no relationship to the way that a 21st-century office treater, cleaner, is treated, for example. The father, the paterfamiliaris, the head of the first-century household or family, could exercise powers that no CEO or MD would be allowed to today. And so the keen edge of those Ephesian household codes, what was said to those Christians about those relationships, has been dulled by the societal changes that, at least in the West, make everybody's lives more humane. So heard along those, alongside those household codes and aware that the early Christian households reflected a highly stratified society, the letter to the Thessalonian churches is every bit as challenging. 
Nobody who is able to is exempted from working to contribute to their own well-being. Did you spot the often quoted little bit of that? Don't work, don't eat. Don't not get quoted around here. Used to get quoted a lot when I was growing up. Often used to counter idleness. But we need to hear it and use it cautiously. This is not saying that the poor and disadvantaged of society are idle, and as a result of that, they go hungry. Absolutely not. What it is, is a caution to those who feel that they ought to be kept. That their oh-so-spiritual calling somehow sets them beyond those who have to work. The idea of a gentrified clergy person sponging off other people who maybe cannot afford to help them is abhorrent to the writer of this letter. And yet, if we know, if we look through history, there have been times when, sadly, ministers and priests have been lazy and sponged off their congregations and their parishes. It isn't the time or place to reflect on the working conditions of contemporary ministers or missionaries. But it is important that whilst we instinctively see something right in the notion that people should pull their weight and not be overly dependent on the goodwill of others, again, this passage doesn't neatly transplant into our context, our world. So it's not going to surprise you that, once again, I've gone looking elsewhere to try and find some resources that will help us think about a Christian attitude to work. And as part of that, we're going to start with a little bit of church history. Throughout history, the church has had what can at best be described as an ambivalent relationship with work. The language of toil, drudgery, and travail each of which is found in scripture, is negative. Work becomes a necessary evil. Its purpose is simply about survival. And all of that, despite the incredibly positive stories with which the Bible begins. Humankind is given the task of naming the animals, of cultivating the earth, of delighting in creation. But then things seem to go wrong, and work becomes drudge, travail, toil. But also in Christian history, there has been a kind of tension between faith and work. The book of James, my favourite, nearly didn't make it into the Bible on those grounds. But there's something about the relationship between good works and salvation that has been very fraught with theological, theological opinion changing a lot throughout the centuries. There's not always been one neat view on any of that. If we went back to Thomas Aquinas, he seems to have had a rather jaded view of work, purely functional. So this is what Thomas Aquinas thought the purpose of work was. To obtain food, to avoid idleness, to restrain concupiscence, which I had to look up, that just means it's to constrain lust, and to permit almsgiving. That seems to me a rather negative view of work. 
that it's all about stopping you doing what you shouldn't and just stopping you being lazy. We get a very different view of work in the monastic rule of St. Benedict. For St. Benedict, work is just as important and valuable as contemplation. The physical labour of the monks in the garden or in the orchard or wherever is elevated to the same level as his pietistic devotion. A monk can't say, my job is to pray or my job is to work. His job is to work and to pray and both of those are part of his Christian service. Just as an aside, it's interesting that some major companies in the 21st century are adopting a Benedictine kind of model for the workplace, building in rhythms of work and reflection and rest into how they structure their offices and what they provide for their staff because they they think there is something whole about that. So we had Aquinas' very negative view. We had Benedict's very positive view. Perhaps it was people like Luther who particularly have shaped our Protestant understandings of work, this Protestant work ethic that has shaped our understanding as Western Christians. The doctrine of soli fide, sola gratia, salvation by faith through grace, was stressed over against a perceived doctrine of salvation by works, or more specifically, good works. And this is what's kind of affected the doctrine of purgatory, which some Christians would still hold to, the idea that you do good works to get yourself closer to God and ultimately to heaven. In contemporary British parlance, though, the expression work ethic is often used quite carelessly to suggest a positive attitude towards work, a willingness to commit time and energy to doing a good job, and that's got nothing whatsoever to do with your faith or your worldview. A good work ethic means you turn up regularly, on time, and you work hard. Now, that's a good attitude, isn't it? And one that Christians really ought to embrace without needing to be reminded of it. But it isn't enough to say that that is a specifically Christian way of approaching work. So very briefly, I want to share with you four insights I've discovered this week of how we might look at work and then touch on, even more briefly, the very thorny topic of work and Sabbath. So four ways of looking at work through a Christian lens that might help us to shape our attitude towards it. The first one is the concept of vocation. Generally, that word is used explicitly in a religious way to refer to the divine calling of individuals to ordained ministry or in some traditions to religious orders. For many years, it was also a term used in relation to the so-called caring professions, so things like medicine and education. And perhaps that is understandable since the modern hospitals and schools actually could trace their roots back to the monasteries. The monasteries provided education and had hospitals. 
there has been an unhelpful and theologically questionable assumption that somehow these were higher callings than other professions or occupations, which could be dismissed as base and common or secular and worldly. I found it quite interesting that now, when we use the term vocational, it'll be as a descriptor for something practical like auto-engineering or hairdressing. We seem to have shifted the use of the word without even stopping to think about it. And that is interesting because that reflects the theology of Luther, who said that everybody has a vocation, a calling that has nothing to do with status, but rather to do with having a role within society. And the nature of that call may vary. In the time of Luther, and I think this is an anglicised quote from Luther, vocations could include milking cows, cutting hay, cooking meals, or administering the realm. The motivation for work, then, moves away from Aquinas' purely functional model to thinking about motivation. What is it that motivates work? God loves us, and God commands us to love one another. And each one of us has a role to play within that. And so God calls and equips each one of us for service. Whether that is teaching children, treating patients in a hospital, cleaning the house, or picking up litter, the motivation according to Luther, is God's love expressed through us. The second insight arises from this. If everybody has a vocation, and if the motivation for work is love, then we're forced to question the way in which work has become commodified, that work is something we can buy and sell, that is purely functional, it actually forces us to address our attitudes within the workplace and in relation to the experiences of others. This isn't the time to discuss corporate business and trade ethics. But as Christians, our understanding of work should inform our thinking in these complex areas. Rather than a thing that is bought and sold, might we view our work as Paul did in the letter to the church at Corinth? which we started the service with, and I played about with one of the words, as co-working, co-building, or co-creating with God. Because the word that is used by Paul to describe himself and Apollos can validly be translated in each of those ways, as co-workers, co-builders, or co-creators with God in the household of God. Last week, we talked about the idea of the church as the household of God. And therefore, each one of us becomes a worker with God. And our own work, whether that's paid or unpaid, has the potential to become part of God's creative work. I find that quite mind-blowing. That what we do 
whether it's washing the dishes, cleaning the car, doing complicated research, teaching, broadcasting, whatever it is, can be part of God's creative work. And if we take that view of our work, there is a word we can never use to describe it. We can never say, oh, I'm just a housewife. No, you're not. You are a co-housewife with God. You can never be just a teacher. No, you're not. You are a co-teacher with God, and so on and so forth. If we allow ourselves to draw on one of the frequently used expressions when we talk about God as creator, redeemer, and sustainer, then in some way our work expresses those qualities. So, for example, if our job was to be a lorry driver or a taxi driver, we would be a safe, reliable, dependent, courteous driver. And if we are an accountant, we will be an honest, diligent, caring accountant because those reflect the qualities of our God who calls each one of us to be co-workers, co-creators. Such an understanding of our work as participation in the work of God doesn't only affect the way we work, but I think it affects our tendency to compartmentalise our lives. People talk about the sacred-secular divide, and for nearly 40 years of my life, I did. The truth is, there ain't no such animal in the household of God. Even if we try, we cannot leave our faith at the factory gate because our faith is a part of who we are. Whether we like it or not, and whether or not those amongst whom we work know it, that we are Christians, sorry, whether or not those amongst whom we work know that we are Christians, our work becomes a witness for good or ill to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There are some people who think that Christians have a primary duty to evangelise those they meet in the course of their work. And that can leave those, like me, who didn't, feeling like a failure. About 20 years ago, I heard a children's evangelist speaking about where and when evangelism was the right thing and where and when witness was the right thing. And what he said was something like this. I know that my daughter's French teacher is a Christian, and that's great. But I don't want her to be evangelising my daughter. I want her to teach her French and to teach her French to the very best of her ability. And I think that evangelist was right. Our employers employ us for a task. And our primary calling is to fulfil that task to the very best of our ability, with a positive attitude, recognising it is our part in the creative, redemptive, sustaining work of God. Another little story. The story is told of some Christians who were held in a labour camp under the communist regime, when you could be arrested and sent to hard labour because you believed in Christ. 
Every day, they, along with the other political and distant prisoners, would be sent out to do physically demanding and largely meaningless work. A prison guard was heard to observe, you can always tell the believers, they work hard and they don't complain. We don't have to be shouting out what it is we believe. Our work should witness for us, because that is part of our Christian calling. Fourthly, and this links back a bit with Benedict, that work is actually worship. In Hebrew, the same word can be translated into English either as work or worship. the work of the people. I think we have a tendency to see worship as what we do on a Sunday or what we do in our private devotional times. We think of it in terms of word and rituals that deliberately and explicitly focus our minds and hearts towards God. I have heard, and I think this is a particularly ugly expression, Sunday worship described as Doing business with God. Faith is not a series of business transactions. We don't pay our dues in confession. We don't say thank you to God in order that God gives us even more. That's not worship. It's not liturgy. It isn't even work. A more helpful word is the word service, which we use to describe our gatherings. I don't know whether you ever think about the fact that we use service to describe this and service to describe (laughs) stuff that we do outside. But it reminds us that we are all called to serve God in diverse ways, in diverse places, and that worship is not about warm fuzzies or inspired preaching, but actually about intentionally directing our service Godwards. Yes, of course, part of what it's about is being refreshed and renewed to go out and express our service in the world. But that sacred, secular divide, for me, doesn't work since the scripture tells us the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If our work becomes part of our worship, if we consciously see that as part of what we offer to God, as, what we, as well as what we do alongside God, perhaps that will affect our motivation. There are people here who are being prepared for paid employment, students, people in training. And I wonder what your aspirations are. Is it to gain promotion? Is it to earn lots of money, to buy lots of things? Is it to find fulfilment? Or is it to play your part as a co-worker with God, serving and witnessing to Christ, fulfilling God's call in your life? And for those in paid employment, the same question is there. And for those who are retired, there'll be similar questions. What is it that matters for us? Self-gratification, fulfilment, 
or playing our part as co-workers with God, which surprisingly, usually, gives us the greatest fulfilment. Very quickly, and necessarily briefly, a word on work and the Sabbath. There isn't time now to explore in detail the Sabbath concept properly, nor to engage in the convoluted and complex theologies around what is or is not permissible on a Sunday. Or should that be a Saturday, since Saturday was the original Sabbath? Just to remind ourselves that this principle of a day of rest for all people and for all of creation is mandated in Scripture. The little story we heard from the life of Jesus showed that he didn't actually get too hung up over the legal definition of a Sabbath. He was more bothered about what went on inside. The Sabbath is God's gift to us. It's meant to serve us, to work for us. It isn't a list of thou shalt nots, but it is an opportunity to relax and to be refreshed, a space to be renewed. Rest from labour is really important, and I preach mostly to myself on this because I'm a workaholic, I freely admit it. We do well to recognise that if we are to fulfil our vocations properly, if we are to do creative work that is really worthy of God, if we are truly to witness to the good of God, then we must take time to rest, to reflect, to be renewed. The reality is that it isn't always possible to take a full day out every week. That's just the world in which we live. But perhaps I'm not the only one here who needs to be reminded that actually rest and relaxation is also part of our witness to the creative work of God. Amen. And now let us bring our prayers for others. O God, our Father, we bring now our prayers for others and for ourselves. Today we've been thinking about the concept of a Christian work ethic, but for many of our citizens at this time, the problem of gaining and holding paid work is a major concern. In these times of recession and need for financial cuts, millions of our citizens are unemployed or fear the impending prospect of being unemployed and are perplexed as to the meaning of a Christian work ethic for them at this time of uncertainty. And all of us have been nurtured in a culture where one's work has given meaning and direction to our living. Work has provided an income for ourselves and for those who depend upon us. Work has accorded us status. Work has provided the key to the material benefits which we have enjoyed. And the income from our work has given us opportunity to support not only ourselves, but to allocate funds for the work and witness of our church and for all our giving to charity. Perhaps we in the West, and particularly in the Protestant tradition, have overemphasized the importance of work as part of our lives. It has been claimed by some that it was this ethic which provided the driving force which gave impetus to the development of advanced capitalism, which brought both many blessings 
and at the same time much distress to millions in society who became wage slaves in a system which looked at labour as a mere commodity to be bought and sold. And yet, whatever our views on the broad economic canvas, we would wish to tighten the focus of our thoughts on what the Christian work ethic might mean today. And so we would pray that in whatever circumstances we find ourselves at this time, we would seek to be honest, truthful and faithful in the role that we play in God's kingdom today. Thus we would seek to fulfil the injunction of Paul to Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. And so we would pray for all young people that they might use their time wisely to develop skills which they might put to good use, whether in paid work or in voluntary effort for others. We pray for students who are emerging from our universities in even greater numbers than ever, that they might find opportunity to use their hard-earned learning and that in addition to their knowledge, they may show flexibility, imagination and resilience as they move out into a world where within the compass of their lifetime, they might expect to have a whole series of different employments and occupations. We pray for all those who exercise power and authority in politics and the economy, and particularly in the field of employment planning. So we pray for wise councils in government, the trade unions, our universities and colleges, and above all, in the control of our great industries and professions, that together they might seek for the common good and the benefit of the whole of our people, and not merely the narrow interests of one section of society. We pray, too, for truth and transparency in the world of banking and finance and for honest dealing and prudent decision-making as we seek to redress the balance from the excesses of debt at the international, national and personal level which have pledged the future of our young people for decades ahead. And so, dear Lord, we would seek your blessing and guidance for each of us as individuals that in a world where uncertainty seems to be endemic, we might live each day in faith, in all things trusting ourselves to your good purpose for each one of us. And in that faithful attitude, we bring before you all who suffer or are hurting this morning. We think of those whose lives have been blunted because of many years of unremitting physical work, those who live with the consequences of an industrial disease, and also those for whom the responsibility of work and continuous tension have caused mental breakdown or depression. While we declare the virtues of of a work ethic, may we never forget those for whom this overarching philosophy has produced feelings of guilt and inadequacy, such that they've been unable to persevere under such pressures. Bless all such, we pray, and may you uphold them and those who are directly affected by their illness. And so, dear Lord, as each of us comes to you this day, trusting in you to be the companion of the way, and, where, and whether we are young people looking forward and preparing ourselves for an uncertain future, in our middle years with heavy responsibilities of work and family, recently struck down by illness or unemployment or overwhelmed by a sense of helplessness, or in our later years of retirement, when formal work has become only a memory and yet still in need of purpose and direction. 
May each and all find encouragement, consolation, strength, and the will to persevere. O God, our Father, we pray that whatever stage in life we now live, may we find the true meaning and purpose for our days by committing ourselves to your service in employment, in voluntary work, in upholding the life of our church, in daily responsibilities to our family, our neighbours and our friends, that by offering ourselves wholly to you, our Master, we may indeed find that such service is perfect freedom. Amen. Thank you, Ken. God of work and rest and pleasure, grant that what we do this week may be for us an offering rather than a burden. And for those we serve, may it be the help they need. And as we go from here, may we do so refreshed and renewed to be and to speak good news wherever we go. In Christ's name.